Hello, and welcome to the John 315 podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your one and only host for today. They call me Jeremy, not a new dad, Swingle, and conspicuously absent from the podcast today um, is my beloved co-host, the great Jonathan Van Schenk, who is in fact a new dad as of a few weeks ago. Well, perhaps new dad is not the right word for it because uh, this is his second child. But um, John and his wife uh, have been blessed with a, a beautiful daughter. And, um, you know, John is, I'm sure, just swamped with the baby. So I thought um, I would jump in and do a little solo podcast, a little, probably a little shorter than um, our typical podcasts. Um, I'm, I'm hoping this episode will end up being. Um, so just me today. Uh, and um, John is the one who normally does the editing for these uh, podcasts. So you'll notice there was no uh, <laughs> cool guitar intro like we normally have. Um, and we're not going to throw in the uh, audio clips for the meat and the other meat and the milk. Um, just an unedited, uh, you just get me today. If I make any major mistakes, you'll hear them in the final product, because um, I just wanted to throw an episode out there to, uh, um, I guess, keep keep uh, something for you guys to listen to while we uh, put together episodes in the future um, for when John will be more available. Uh, that being said, I don't think you'll have to wait long. Uh, we're super gung-ho about what we'll be doing next. Uh, we got some great episodes lined up for you all. Um, and we're, I am, am reading voraciously for them more than I normally do. I'm, I'm reading, um, about the topics we'll be covering next. So, um, I think John will be pumped to get back into it. Uh, and, um, all that being said, um, I, my, me and my wife are also expecting, uh, in February, uh, our second child. So, um, you know, this'll turn around on me, um, I guess sometime next year, maybe John will be recording his own solo episode when that time rolls around. Um, but that, that being said, um, that's just by way of introduction. Hopefully um, everyone is okay with a little bit less well-produced of a podcast this week. Uh, and um, I'm going to be looking at uh, this uh, passage in Luke 16 of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Or is it a parable? Um, the reason I chose to uh, tackle this uh passage this week is, um, those of you who listened to the last episode may remember, we talked to Josiah Leinbach about the, the Good Samaritan, and uh, he convinced us that it is likely a historical story, something that really happened that Jesus was recounting. Uh, and we mentioned briefly during that podcast uh, the Rich Man and Lazarus story, which a lot of people regard um, also as a historical story, uh, but we didn't go into any details on that. But I thought, hey, actually, it would be a really good idea to maybe look at that passage and also come to some sort of a conclusion on, on whether that passage is a real story or um, something Jesus made up as a parable to make a point. Uh, I also thought that maybe it would be good to do an episode where we talk a little bit about what parables are, because uh, they're frequently misunderstood, I think, uh, in, in the church. So, uh, so that'll be kind of the topic for today. We'll, we'll read the passage, um, the parable. Um, I'll do a brief exposition on, on what's going on in it. We will tackle the eternal burning question of, is this a um, parable or not? Uh, no pun on eternal burning, because that's what happens to the rich man in the parable. 
Um, we will tackle that question. And um, then we're, we're going to take a look at, I think, a few really important application points from this passage that are missed and I think super relevant. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that they're in this passage. Uh, it's a su- super important passage. I'm excited to get into it with you all. <clears throat> and uh, let's just go ahead and get started. So I am looking at Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 31. And Jesus begins. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So that's the parable. Uh, pretty famous, um, pretty familiar. Let's look at some details here, just so we, we know what we're dealing with. First thing I want to note is that the rich man is not named anywhere in this parable. Uh, tradition has given him the name Dives, I think is how it's pronounced. It's spelled like the word Dives, D-I-V-E-S. I've heard it pronounced DVs, so I'm going with that. Um, that's kind of like the tradition of this passage, but but it's not actually what Luke wrote, <laughs> Jesus as saying. Um, Jesus just calls him the rich man. He does, however, give the poor man a name, as we all know, Lazarus. And I think the intent of this is, is to indicate something of the irrelevance of the rich man compared to the poor. Um, Jesus argues that the poor man is elevated and receives his good things later in the afterlife and you know we could draw language from revelation here and say hey lazarus's name is written in the lamb's book of life Uh, meanwhile the rich man though he was exalted in this age but eventually he's brought low and receives his bad things um, such that his name almost becomes irrelevant right and so like the you know in god's economy of things the people whose names matter are the ones who are written in the lamb's book of life and those who reject the the Messiah, their names come to nothing, right? Uh, I think that's kind of the the idea of this. Uh, So what is this rich man like? What is he doing? Well, it says that he feasts sumptuously every day. This is highly excessive language. This denotes um, a sort of like a, a sort of lifestyle that is beyond what any sort of average rich person would be would be involved in. You know, a rich person would would feast sumptuously occasionally, 
Um, but this idea that he's doing this every day, I mean, what else, what else is he doing with his time? You know, if you're a king and you have a lot of money, I mean, yeah, you got a lot of money, but you also have a lot of responsibility. This guy is just partying it up. He's feasting sumptuously every day. It's just really excessive what he's doing. He's clothed in purple and fine linen, it says. Purple is, of course, the royal color. Um, what many may not know is that it, the reason it became a royal color historically, um, it was more expensive to make purple dye. Uh, it required many hours of labor. I don't know the exact process. I, I think it involved... Like, something with snails, you got to find a lot of snails, I don't know, something like that. The point being, it's ostentatious, it's unnecessary, it's lavish, um, gaudy. You could add more, more synonyms, right? The idea is that this isn't a necessary thing for life. It's something you do to show your status, to show your wealth. Um, and that's what, how, how, you would, uh, how you would arrive at a place where you're wearing purple fine linen. Uh, what about Lazarus? Who's what's this poor man like? Well, he's outside the rich man's house. He's laid at the gate. Um, it even it doesn't say that he like sits there. He it says that he's laid there. It's almost like he's not even capable of moving himself. Someone is putting him there, perhaps to try to beg from the rich man. Right? He's he's got a humble position for sure. Um, he desires even to eat the scraps. He he's never never offered even that from the rich man, but he would be content with that. He doesn't want the purple. He doesn't want the sumptuous feasting. He just wants the scraps. That would be enough for him. Um, he, you know, the rich man has plenty of those to share, but he doesn't share them with Lazarus, who's right at his gate suffering. The, then you have these dogs who are coming up to him and licking his sores. They're, this is not like a cute portrait. <laughs> I think most people probably get that, but maybe some have in their idea, like, you know, cute little puppies, right? That's not what's going on here. It, these are wild beasts, right? They're they're tormenting him. You know, they're licking his sores, almost like saying he's a dead man, right? Um, you know, it's the image of, like, buzzards circling a person who's about to die, right? They're hoping to pick off what's left of him afterward. There's nothing cute about this. This is being assaulted by wild animals to some degree. So what happens? Of course, we know what happens next in the story. Both men die. The rich man is buried, and he suffers torments in Hades. Uh, now, this term Hades, it, it's a generic term for where the spirits of the dead go after they die. Um, but in this context, and, and many others uh, in the New Testament, it, it means hell. I mean, it's often translated as hell. In the ESV, it, it's more technically accurate, and it gives us the word Hades. But it's a place of conscious torment that your spirit goes to after you die. Um, and here it describes him as being in, in anguish and flame. And fire is, is obviously a common metaphor for judgment in scripture. It's used to describe hell. Um, and it was particularly commonly employed by Jews in Jesus' day. There are other metaphors for eternal judgment in the Bible. For example, outer darkness. Uh, Jesus refers to it as. Um, but here we see this classic motif of like tormenting fire that never quenches. Um, also of note, while we're talking about it, uh, since I mentioned the common nature of fire in Jesus' day as a metaphor for judgment, also note like almsgiving is considered one of the chief virtues to the Jews. Uh, many rabbis in Jesus' day taught the importance of almsgiving as one of the chief, chief most important things that a virtuous Jew would do. So Jesus is here 
you know, interacting somewhat with that body of literature. He's, you know, agreeing with it. He's not disputing with it. <laughs> he he uh, here seems to be intensifying it to a rather intense degree. You know, it's like, uh, obviously, it's not just that you should give the poor to be virtuous, but the, the failure to do so on the part of this rich man leads to his eternal judgment. So Lazarus, um, in contrast to the, the rich man, though, Lazarus is not even mentioned as having been buried. Instead, Jesus just says he dies and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Like presumably, his body was buried by the, you know the loved ones he left behind, but uh, Jesus only talks about the burial of the rich man. Um, what happens to those still on earth is not seeming to be Jesus's concern here. As far as Lazarus is conscious, he goes to be with Father Abraham immediately. Uh, what happens to his body is not part of what matters to, to Lazarus, you know. That's something that, that uh, his loved ones take care of. But I find it interesting that, that it mentions the burial of the rich man, but not the poor man. Um, Lazarus immediately goes to be with the angels, and it's not part of the story, uh, his burial. Of course, Abraham is, you know, this, this patriarch and hero of the faith. He's a figure that would be a, a super important and relevant one to put here you know lazarus is affirmed by this hero of the faith but the rich man is not you know i've inter i mean it's interesting to note here that abraham was was a rich man by the standards of his day at least you know he had flocks and herds and servants i mean he was doing well for himself it's kind of a funny little uh, little thing to mention here you know and that would go along with the general idea that john and i have covered on this podcast before that riches by themselves are not really the point of what jesus is critiquing here the the indifference to the plight of the poor is is what's in view okay so you've got uh, these men one of them is carried to abraham's side by the angels the other is in torment in the flame and this rich man sees Lazarus and Abraham it says he lifts up his eyes and he sees them and what he does next is shocking don't miss this detail the rich man asks Abraham for mercy okay which seems appropriate but what is what does he request for mercy he tells Abraham to send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame and it's telling that the rich man commands Abraham to have Lazarus do this. Um, it's like he's treating Lazarus like a mere servant, someone whom he's above, someone to order around, right? It's like even in this situation, he can't resist the temptation to, to like have Lazarus do things for him, right? It's like, dude, you lived your whole life and you had the opportunity to do something really meaningful to this man and you didn't do it. And here you are commanding that he do things for you. Um, the, the, you know, lack of self-awareness on the part of this rich man is, is hard to overstate, right? Um, and Abraham responds to him, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Um, so this is a classic, uh, Jesus t does this all the time. It's like an ironic reversal kind of tactic, right? Uh, those who receive good in this age will receive bad. Those who receive bad in this age will receive good. It's like, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So this right here is classic Jesus. You know, I know Abraham's saying it, but Jesus is telling the story, right? This is just classic uh, Jesus storytelling format here. Good stuff. Um, and then Abraham says, uh, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Uh, this would seem to exclude any possibility of people repenting post-mortem, uh, which is an idea that is somehow um, sometimes thrown around by theologians. We'll talk a little more about this later when I talk about the application of this parable. Uh, I thought I would just mention it here as like, this is a pretty clear statement of the finality of our eternal you know, abode, right? Uh, once you are in hell or in heaven, there's a chasm that's been fixed. You can't pass from one to the other. You know, this is pretty clearly what Abraham is indicating. Okay, so that being said, you know, the rich man responds again to, to Abraham, and you have a little back and forth here for the rest of the parable. Uh, the rich man, <laughs> shockingly, he makes another demand of Lazarus. So he resigns himself to his fate. He's like, okay, I guess I'm just tormented here. That's just what, what's how it's going to be. You know, Abraham said no. But then he wants Lazarus to go warn his brothers about uh, Hades, this place of torment. Uh, and Abraham's response is just... Uh, I just love this. Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Here, uh, Moses and the prophets is, is a stand-in term for the Torah. So, so you know, Moses is the uh, author of the Torah, or at least substantially most of it. You know, Deuteronomy describes Moses' death, for example. Probably Moses didn't write that part. Um, but generally speaking, Moses wrote the Torah. That's Genesis uh, through Deuteronomy. And then the prophets um, actually does not mean necessarily what you might think it means, because usually we refer to the prophets as the books from Isaiah through Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. But um, in the Jewish canon, there's there's two categories of prophets. There's the former prophets, which might be surprising. It's actually the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So those books we would refer to as the historical books, typically, today. Um, but Jews would refer to those as prophets, prophetic books. Um, and then the latter prophets uh, is the other designation, and that's more what we think of when we think of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all 12 minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. Kind of debatable if Daniel is considered part of that or not. That's, that's a whole separate issue. Um, but at any rate, you know, when, when Abraham mentions Moses and the prophets, he's basically saying, you know, they have the Bible, right? they have the Old Testament. Um, why can't your brothers listen to them, right? Uh, that's Abraham's point. Uh, and so the rich man quips back immediately and notice what he says. He says the word no. <laughs> he says, no, Father Abraham. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. It's, you know, it's I, as a father of a uh, <laughs> of a 17-month-old child, you know, uh, just the the immediate no, right? Uh, the the uh, defiance <laughs> of the rich man. He's like, no, Father Abraham, you're wrong, <laughs> right? It's like, you're not really in a good position here, bud. You're literally in hell. Like, <laughs> so, the, you know, the, the gall of this man is really something, right? He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Just this flippancy with which the rich man treats the holy prophets of God. Uh, these are the prophets who gave God's law. Moses gave the law, and, and the prophets later preached the importance of repenting and adhering to that law. Uh, you know, and 
and his flippancy toward the message of those prophets, that's the root of his problem here, of his flippancy toward Lazarus, his flippancy toward the demands um, to, you know, be generous to the poor, which are everywhere in the Torah, right? He's not paying attention to Moses. He's not paying attention to Torah. That's the, the crucial problem here. So how does, how does Abraham respond? And Abraham's final response to this man um, is really the punch of this, this story here. Uh, Abraham tells him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, when Jesus initially told this parable, his hearers would have understood this, you know, as a plea to pay attention to the prophets, right? You got to be paying attention to them, right? Um, miracles won't convince you. You got to listen to Moses and the prophets. But of course, Luke is including this in his gospel, right? This is more, there's more to interpret here than just Jesus telling the parable. There's the fact that Luke thought this was important to add to his gospel. And, and that invites us to consider where we already know that this story goes. Jesus actually is going to rise from the dead, like the rich man is hoping Lazarus will do for him, you know, for his brothers. But um, like Lazarus, Jesus is also going to die stricken, smitten, and afflicted, rejected by men utterly, but chosen by God and precious to God, right? Um, and just like Lazarus, you know, Jesus is going to be exalted. But it's actually going to be even greater than Lazarus is being carried by the angels. He's going to rise as triumphant, the exalted son of God. Nevertheless, even though Jesus is far greater, far greater of a sufferer than Lazarus, but also far greater of a triumphant, exalted king than Lazarus, right? Nevertheless, some will refuse to be convinced even if Jesus rises from the dead. Of course, that's true. We see that in the book of Acts, which Luke is also an author of. Um, it's kind of the sequel to his gospel. So we see it in Acts. We see it in the persecution of the apostles. And today we see it. Um, you know, in our everyday lives, as there are those who refuse to be convinced of Jesus's messiahship, um, even after his rising from the dead. Abraham had a good point here, right? Uh, if they don't hear, if they won't listen to God's word, no miracle will persuade them, is the idea. And uh, there's, there's, I think, a good application point for that that we'll discuss uh, at the end of this episode. Um, but for now, we've gone through the parable. We sort of looked at the uh, the salient features of it. And I think now we need to talk about parables <laughs> and whether this constitutes a parable. Um, so <laughs> we'll jump right in. Uh, what, what is the Greek term behind, behind this word? It's parabole, and literally it means like something that is cast alongside. Uh, para means beside, and balo is the verb for to throw or to cast something. So a parabole, uh, is is a noun form of that something that is cast alongside you know something else uh, scripture never clearly defines parable for us it's just a word that that gets thrown in there jesus told this parable uh, jesus began speaking to the crowd in parables uh, it just starts using that language uh, so there's no definition here it's we just know the etymology and that jesus likes to teach with with them you know so we have to figure out kind of like what parables are from, you know, the text itself, what Jesus is doing when it says he's using a parable. Um, so, you know, there, there are instances, for example, where uh, where parables aren't introduced using the noun parabole. Um, there's Matthew 21, 
For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This is clearly a parable. Jesus, you know, starts with the kingdom of heaven is like blankety blankety blank. And earlier in Matthew, in chapter 13, there's this whole section with a million parables and they're identified as parables and they pretty much all start with the kingdom of heaven is like blankety blankety blank, you know. So this has to be a parable, but it's not introduced that way. Um, you know, presumably because by this point in, in the gospel, we already kind of know. But it also, you know, the point is there's some ambiguity in determining what a parable is or not. It's not always super clearly defined by the writers of the gospels. Um, oh, and it's it's worth pointing out here while I'm talking about, you know, the writers of the gospels, John actually doesn't have any parables in it. So this is exclusively a Matthew, Mark, and Luke phenomenon, what we call the synoptic gospels. Um, those three gospels are the ones that have the parables in them. So how should we define parable? What are the features of parables um, that are non-ambiguous that we can identify? Well, it seems obvious that a parable is a story which uses some form of comparison to make an ethical or a theological point. Um, and the comparison is that you know, what the etymology is referring to, the casting alongside, right? So you've got a story that you're casting alongside um, a point that you're trying to make, and the two are going, you know, hand in hand. Um, those of you who might remember in math class, I know John would be all over this, he, you know, is better than I do, but, you know, a parabola in math, that's based on the same word as parable. And, you know, a parabola is this kind of like um, semicircular feature, right? There's like two sides of it. Uh, so that's kind of the idea here. You've got the story and you've got its point, and they go together. And this comparison uh, that, that is being cast alongside this point, um, it'll be typically an everyday illustration that's familiar to Jesus' audience. So you've got topics like farming and agriculture, wage laborer, you know, day laboring, um, the relationship between a servant and his master, investing money, uh, buying property, uh, you've got several that uh, revolve around traditions surrounding weddings, so like wedding feasts and, and the, you know, the wedding banquet that a father would throw for his son. Uh, and then you've got like the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom and the, the, their lamps run out. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't look too much into that parable um, in preparing for this episode, so I don't exactly know the tradition, wedding tradition behind it, but one way or another it's pretty obvious that's something that would be somewhat familiar to the audience, you know, virgins waiting for the bridegroom. So the intent is that people can, you know, use their everyday experience as a metaphor or a simile to understand a point. And they can draw a line from something tangible and immediately understood to something spiritual and less tangible. However, all that being said, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself here, <laughs> but this is super crucial to understand. Um, that the purpose of the parables actually was not to make a clear point. Jesus wasn't trying to be clear to his audience. In fact, he told parables to be uh, less clear and to obfuscate his point. Uh, many don't know that, uh, but Jesus, that's the reason he gives for why he told parables. Um, now, so, so the, what, I mean, what's the function of those everyday illustrations then if he's not trying to make himself clear? Well, okay, Jesus did use these everyday illustrations, but he concealed the meaning of those illustrations from his audience and only taught them to the disciples. So, you know, of what use is an illustration if the audience doesn't know what it's supposed to be illustrating? <laughs> um, 
Jesus deliberately hid the meaning of the parables from the public. So, you know, just so you know I'm not off on my rocker here, let's take a look at Matthew 13, which is kind of the key text here. And I'm going to jump around a bit, so so follow along. This covers the whole chapter, which is like 58 verses long, um, but I'll jump around, you know, a lot. Um, so, Starting from verse 1, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Then I won't give you the whole parable, but he goes on to tell the parable of the seed, the various seeds, and the sower. So you've got, you know, the seed that falls on rocky places, the seed that gets scorched by the sun, the seed that, you know, fell among the thorns, and then you have the good seed, uh, or, the, or rather the seed that fell on the good soil where that seed grows and produces a crop but the others don't. But notice that Jesus doesn't, like, tell the crowd, like, what any of this indicates. He just talks about seed and what happens to it. It's just an illustration, but there's no point attached to it. So in verse 10... Having told this story without a point, the disciples came, it says, the disciples came to him and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus's reply is crucial. He says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, that's the disciples, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And this is a quotation here from Isaiah, by the way. So Jesus is now explaining why he speaks in parables using a quotation from Isaiah. He says, Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, and this is no longer um, the Isaiah quotation, this is just Jesus to his disciples. He says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Then immediately Jesus launches into this. He says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. And then he gives the interpretation. He says what each seed stands for. Um, but he did not say that to everybody. He said it only to the disciples. And he gives them that interpretation right after giving this quotation from Isaiah. It's to, you know it's from the toward the beginning of the book. I, I don't have the reference written down here, but it's it's when you know God is commissioning Isaiah to uh, toward his preaching ministry. And he's explaining to Isaiah that actually the purpose of your preaching is to harden the hearts of the people. They're not going to listen to you. It's actually their judgment that I'm sending you out there to preach the message, but they will not respond to it. So Jesus, this, this is where Jesus sees himself as he's preaching the parables. He's seeing himself in this tradition of Isaiah who is teaching the people, but it's only to their judgment. Um, and this is why he says, you know, whoever has will be given more, whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He's going to teach his disciples the meaning of these parables, but he's not accessing, he's not giving access to that knowledge to the general public. 
So he he interprets this parable, um, and then in verse twenty four he begins teaching another parable, and this is the parable of the the um, wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. Is uh, modern translations will use the the more understood term weeds instead of tares. But the idea of this parable, of course, is that you know wheat and weeds are growing up together in the same field, and the master of this. Um, or, you know, the master of this, uh, this field is, is, is saying, you know, hey, don't pull out the, the weeds because you might accidentally get rid of some of the weed with them. Let them grow together, right? But, you know, just like the last parable that Jesus told, there's nothing going on here except a story about, you know, a master and his servants and weed and weeds. There's not any point that's being told here. Um, then Jesus starts telling some other parables. He talks about mustard seeds. He talks about yeast um, working through all the dough. Um, and then we jump down to verse 34. It says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd, to the crowd, so he's talking to the crowd, in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now we're in verse 36, and this is fascinating. It says, then he, that's Jesus, he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And then Jesus proceeds to explain what that means. So you get this interesting interchange here of Jesus Matthew's very clearly writing this to indicate that Jesus is talking to the crowd at some points and the disciples at other points. It even meant, it talks about Jesus leaving the crowd, going back into the house. Matthew really wants to, like, you know, shape his story so that the reader understands this. Um, when Jesus is interpreting the parables, he's speaking to the disciples. When he's not interpreting them, he's only talking about the illustration. He doesn't give the point to it. And Matthew even goes out of his way to point out that Jesus says nothing to them without using a parable. So everything is hidden. So that's kind of, it's interesting. A lot of people miss this about the parables, um, which, you know, it's a bit of a difficult thing to grasp. It's like, why would Jesus make a metaphor to make things less clear? <laughs> like, when does anyone ever do that, right? Well, nobody does, except Jesus. Uh, Jesus is his own dude, and he, do, he doesn't live by our our rules. Um, but, uh, but of course, it, it, of course, part of the point is to make it clear, but it's just that he's only making it clear to one group of people, his disciples. Um, the, the rest don't get access to that. But here's where it gets complicated. <laughs> I'll throw a wrench into everything I just explained about the purpose of parables. Um, there are some parables in which Jesus clearly does explain what it means to an unbelieving audience. There's a great one, actually, that is close to where our passage is today. It's just two chapters ahead in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Um, uh, Luke says this, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right, and you know the story. I won't read the whole parable, right? The Pharisee is, is proud, but the tax collector, you know, just says, God be merciful to me, right? But what does Jesus say at the end? He says, I tell you that this man, that is the, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
So this is an interesting scenario where Jesus is clearly not just speaking to his disciples. I mean, Luke is like really clear. He's talking to people who treated others with contempt. I mean, they are the Pharisee in the parable. And Luke even uses the Greek word parabole to refer to this story. But this is not at all Jesus' strategy in Matthew 13. I mean, in here, Jesus is, is deliberately pointing this message right at the Pharisees, and he's be being very clear about what he means. So how do we understand this? Well, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think that defining parable exactly is just going to be a little tricky. Um, there's different reasons in different contexts why Jesus uses parables. And the only thing that seems to remain consistent is that Jesus is using an illustration to make some kind of point. He's casting something along something else. <laughs> uh, really all the, you know, it, it just seems that there is not an extremely strict definition of it, you know. And really when we think about it, that makes sense. I mean, is there only one reason why someone would use a metaphor? Well, not really. I mean, there's lots of different reasons authors employ metaphors. And really, that's just what parables are. It's this fancy Greek word that, that we, uh, we translate um, or we transliterate as parable, we, you know, and it's kind of entered our, our dictionary and our lexicon. And, uh, but when it comes down to it, this isn't um, necessarily an extremely specified theological term in the Gospels. Um, it can be used in different ways in different contexts. Um, so my guess is that something along the lines of, um, you know, when Jesus is talking about the purpose of the parables in Matthew 13, he's talking specifically about, you know, the parables he's teaching on that particular day when he's on the boat, you know. Uh, so whereas in other instances, maybe he's more willing to explain the meaning of his parables. Um, I, I think that's probably the best way to, to, to understand this is... Uh, is not to universalize Matthew 13 too much. That was about a specific instance and perhaps many other instances, but not every instance. Now here's where it, this can become a little tricky. You know, obviously, as we just learned, the audience of the parable really matters. <laughs> um, and we can group the different audiences of the parables into several different categories. You have some parables, for example, that are told to the public, but Jesus only explains the meaning to his disciples. That's the Matthew 13 parables. Then you've got instances where parables are told to the public, but Jesus never explains the meaning to anyone, uh, even the disciples. Uh, so, so those... Um, parables about the yeast and the mustard seed that I briefly mentioned earlier in Matthew 13, there's no explanation of those. Um, although in verse 51 of that chapter, Jesus does ask the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they do answer yes. Now, I don't know how trustworthy the disciples are <laughs> when it comes to that. Um, the Gospels might indicate that, that they're not quite so trustworthy, uh, but at least uh, there kind of is this idea in the text that like uh, the person who trusts in Christ uh, can discern the meaning of, of parables even without a direct explanation of all of them, right? Uh, you know, if, if we can understand the meaning of one of them, then we can, we can piece together some of the others, uh, especially since those other ones are about the kingdom of heaven, uh, just like the ones that are explained. So we can start to kind of piece together similar themed parables and, and their meanings. Um, so yeah, so we have, we have the, those instances where the meaning is not explained by Jesus. Then we have other instances where the parable is only told to the disciples. Um, 
and usually the meaning is made clear in those. So you have uh, 20, uh, Matthew 20, verse 16, at the end of a long parable, Jesus explains the meaning of it. He says, the last will be first and the first will be last. And that's the meaning of the parable um, of um, the, uh, the man who went out to hire workers for his vineyard, but he paid the one who was hired last the same as what he paid the one who was hired first. Um, and so, you know, he gives that illustration, but then since he's only talking to his disciples in that context, he, he goes ahead and gives the meaning. And that doesn't contradict Matthew 13 at all. But then you have other instances where the, <laughs> the audience is ambiguous. Lucky us, right? Uh, we don't exactly know who he's talking to. And um, unfortunately for us, today's passage falls somewhat into that last category. Um, somewhat. At the beginning of Luke 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He teaches the parable of the dishonest manager, and he gives the, the, the point of it. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. All right, so that's that parable, right? But then the Pharisees come on in, and Luke points out that the Pharisees are lovers of money. And it says that they heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. Then Jesus responds and rebukes them, and a few verses later, now he's telling this story of the rich man and Lazarus. So it seems that the Pharisees are the direct audience here, but the disciples are probably still there too. Luke doesn't like, you know, Luke is setting the scene here, but you know, it's, it's not like we have a video footage of what's going on. So it seems to me that the Pharisees are the main audience here, but, but probably some others are, are listening in. So th there's a little bit of ambiguity there. Um, but in this parable, I think that the, the, the point could not possibly be clearer. Uh, so this is not an instance. It, so if the, this is a parable, if rich man and Lazarus is a parable, then it's not the kind of parable that uh, is hidden from the, from the public. This is the kind of one that's obvious. Jesus is pointedly teaching this at the Pharisees, right? And he's clear about what it means. So perhaps the question here um, of whether or not this story or the Good Samaritan story are parables, uh, I think we're actually asking the wrong question. Now that we've talked about it for 20 minutes, I can, <laughs> I hate to disappoint you, but I think what's actually, it's actually just the wrong question. Um, when people are asking whether or not these are parables or history, what they really want to know is if Jesus is telling a true historical story to illustrate a point, or if he's making up a story to illustrate a point. Um, that's what they want to know. Um, but as we just established, um, like parables are, are more <laughs> than just like, um, whether they're true or not. Like, a parable could be true. It's just a story to illustrate a point. Um, so I would say that, that, like, yes. I think I will say definitively yes. Um, the rich man and Lazarus, this is a parable. And I would also say that the story of the Good Samaritan is a parable likewise. But um, I would say that it is not a parable that is ahistorical or made up. Um, but in light of the arguments Josiah Leinbach made in the last episode, I would say it's more likely a, a real story that is being used as a parable. Okay, so, so now that we've gotten that aside, we've talked about parables, we've classified this as a parable, we've learned about parables and what they are, but now, okay, now I know, we, we, we want to know, is this a historical story or not, the way that Josiah argued the Good Samaritan story is. In my personal take... And there's plenty of different uh, opinions on this one, but um, I think, 
No, I don't think so. I don't think it's um, a real story. I think Jesus made it up to make a point like he did most other parables. Um, there's some evidence that it could be historical, but I don't think it's conclusive. And I think the main point of evidence in favor of it is that Lazarus is a named character, which is certainly unusual as far as the parables go. In fact, it would be unique to my knowledge among Jesus's parables. But like we were saying earlier, this could very well be for the sole purpose of distinguishing Lazarus's importance in the story compared to the rich man's, um, you know, lack of importance in, in the eternity future, right? So I think this is a point in favor of it being a real story, but it's inconclusive because there are like understandable rhetorical reasons why Jesus might want to name Lazarus in this story, even if he were a fictional character. So, I, you know, I just think that's the only real major point in favor of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I read a few commentaries on this. The commentaries don't really discuss the point. And, you know, I think that's a little sad, but I also get it. It's not the main point here. It's not, you know, even though people argue about it, it's not the main issue uh, with the parable. Um, but uh, I was able to find a few articles online with people making one argument or another. They just weren't particularly scholarly um, articles. You know, they were okay, but uh, nothing super, super uh, useful, uh, I'm afraid. And so uh, this is really the only point I, I, I encountered that I thought was a good point in favor of it being a historical story. But to me, it's, not in, it's just not conclusive enough. Um, I think Josiah presented a better argument for the Good Samaritan. So, okay. What are some of the strikes against it that I think um, point me in the other direction, that this is a um, fictional story? Well, most of the story takes place in Hades, um, the spirit realm. I mean, human beings alive on earth have no access to Hades. So obviously Jesus is omniscient. He's the God-man. He can know what's going on in Hades. But to me, it would be a little bizarre if Jesus intended anyone to understand this story as history if he's talking about events beyond the grave, right? It, it would, I guess if, if that was Jesus's intention here, I would expect him to say something kind of like that or, or I don't know, indicate that in some way. Um, instead, it, you know, as a man speaking to men on earth, it would just be a little bizarre to me if, uh, if this was Jesus's like um, strategy here. Uh, just strikes me as, as not, uh, not likely. You know, and then there's other things about the fact that it's in Hades. Um, like, this is the place where the spirits of the dead are supposed to go. At this point in history, nobody should have a resurrection body. Um, it, it's, it's you know, the rich man's spirit, which is in Hades. Now, we don't have enough time to get it into the weeds on this in this episode. But, um, you know, just at least the way I understand it theologically... Um, the man should not have a body at this point. Yet, the text says he lifts up his eyes to look at Abraham and Lazarus, and he has a conversation with them. Um, so, I don't know. This leads me to think that, like, this is an imaginative and figurative event. This conversation and, and you know, seeing Abraham and Lazarus going up to heaven. Um, you know, I don't think that, that it's necessarily the case that spirits in hell awaiting their resurrection bodies are capable of communicating with the souls of people as they ascend into heaven. I think that's not really elsewhere taught in scripture and seems a little bit, um, a little bit figurative, you know, like you might imagine a conversation between, um, 
Well, uh, sometimes like uh, movies will do this. You'll have like an angel and a devil sitting on a character's shoulders, and they're talking to each other, you know. And it's meant to represent the the good parts of that character's conscience versus the bad parts, right? Um, and so I think uh, I think this could be a, something sort of like that. Like Abraham and the rich man are talking back and forth, but it's kind of like you know, what would happen if these two could talk to each other sort of thing. Um, not that it's literally happening. Uh, you know, and it's a little bizarre to think about the mechanics of that in the first place. I mean, you have this chasm that's fixed that, that, that makes it so one side can't go to the other. That's a, that would be a weird thing to, to put there um, if, you know, there it was literally possible for, for these two sides to be communicating with one another. Um, and I think the last point I would say, uh, there's an element of exaggeration to the content in this story, which is more characteristic of a fictional story, if you ask me. Um, I mean, we mentioned the rich man feasting sumptuously every day, how that's like an extravagant thing. That's not what ordinary, ordinary, um, greedy rich people do. That's like an extravagantly, like above and beyond extreme, right? Meanwhile, Lazarus's plight is super stark, right? The dogs are licking his sores. He's a dead man, you know, kind of, kind of thing. He's starving. Um, and obviously there were a lot of absolutely poor people in Jesus's day. Lazarus is not, you know, neither Lazarus nor the rich man are, are unrealistic caricatures. There are people who are like both of these men, but it seems that there's like some real extremes being, being pitted against each other here, which to me make it sound a little more like it's, uh, it's fictional. But those are just hunches. I mean, th there's really different ways to, to, to take the story, but I, I would say that's why I come down this side of the debate. I think my final take on it would just be Jesus is giving a lively and imaginative look at the afterlife of these two archetypal men. You've got the rich and the greedy man who only consumes for himself. He never gives to anyone else. Then you've got the poor humble man who has nothing, but he casts all his care on God. These men are representatives of, of larger um, categories that we may fall into one or the other, you know, and we're supposed to see ourselves in that. And, and there's a definite chance that, that Lazarus and the rich man are real figures known by Jesus. But if so, my hunch is that it's not the case that Jesus is giving strict historical details about their lives. And certainly the part of the story that takes place in Hades, I would say is, is, you know, imaginative. Um, and in other words, this might be kind of like a based on a true story kind of deal. I think that could be pretty, pretty likely here. Um, so, uh, now some might be wondering at this point, does this question even matter? <laughs> Are we just like, you know, uh, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Does this really matter that much? Obviously the point of the parable is clear. We should be generous. We should not, uh, feast sumptuously every day and take everything we have for ourselves. We should consider the poor, right? And we should, of course, we should listen to Moses and the prophets. That's the point, right? Well, I don't know. I think this question does actually matter a little bit, even if it is a bit nitpicky. Um, you know, if the story is fictional, my conclusion would be, I don't think we can assume from this passage alone, you know, anything too specific about the nature of Hades and hell. We can conclude that it's permanent. We can conclude that it's that hell is anguish, whereas um, heaven is comfort. Those are mentioned in, in the passage. We can conclude, I think the great chasm that's been fixed, even if that's a metaphor, I think it's meant to 
point to a very literal truth, namely the eternality of our final destination, right? Like there's no post-mortem conversion. That's clear from scripture. And I think that's in this passage for sure. So, so we can, there's a lot we can learn about the doctrine of hell here, but I don't think that like maybe all these literal details are necessarily the way it is. Um, you know, I don't think that we can conclude that at least from this passage alone. And to be a hundred percent clear, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying hell is unreal. I'm just saying that this parable isn't necessarily intended to give like a theologically precise, literalistic account of what hell is like. Uh, that's kind of more the point I'm going for here. I think we would have to look to other passages in Scripture. Um, on Jesus's lips, there's plenty of teaching about hell. Obviously, you got the Book of Revelation. Um, look at some other passages to, to maybe get a, a better idea of the doctrine of hell um, that is taught more didactically and directly and not in the form of a story, which can be harder to discern the details of. Okay, so I've come down on the side on that, uh, on that particular issue. Um, what now? What, what else are we going to hit on in this episode? Well, um, I just have two, two application points. So this will be kind of the milk for today, but I think they're crucial, really, really important. Uh, I've said the word crucial like 10 times in this episode, <laughs> um, uh, so I apologize for, for my uh, repeated use of terms, but, but um, I think the, there, there's just some important points here that, that directly contradict some, some issues in the church today um, and the way that a lot of evangelicals think. Uh, about some issues. So I, the first point I want to bring up here is that there's this error of seeking wisdom from those beyond the grave. Um, what is the rich man's problem here with, with uh, sending Lazarus to warn his brothers, right? Well, Abraham's answer to him is, you know, they already have everything they need to know about the afterlife. They have Moses and the prophets. They can listen to Moses when he commands in the Torah to consider the poor, right? They have everything they need to know. Lazarus going to them won't change their mind. Um, you know, and, and that's what he says. He, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, the, the word of God, why would they listen to, you know, a, a dead man rising, you know? Uh, <clears throat> and um, I think a lot of people miss this, but, but actually this idea of, Lazarus going back from the dead to deliver a message is actually like necromancy. <laughs> like we think of necromancy um, as this like like as a class in Dungeons and Dragons or like a you know um, something you would you would see in a medieval movie about you know uh, sorcerers and wizards and stuff right maybe in Harry Potter I don't know if I can't remember if necromancy is a thing in Harry Potter or, or, or whatnot but this idea of like a necromancer being someone who like communicates with the dead. Um, or mediums, right? Um, you have a story in, in the book of Samuel of uh, Saul con consulting a medium to talk to Samuel. And, you know, Samuel is kind of brought up from the dead to talk to Saul, right? And Samuel's a little upset about it, <laughs> um, to say the least, you know. Um, so anyways, um, you have these, you know, this concept of like inquiring of the dead um, in the Bible. And the Bible does not have a high opinion of it. Listen to Isaiah 8.19. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? It's an interesting question. Um, of course, the answer implied is no, they shouldn't. People should inquire of God. They should look to his word. They should seek him in prayer. 
um, and in the community of the church, right? Um, they should not be inquiring of mediums and necromancers. Um, likewise, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, practices witchcraft, interprets omens, or a sorcerer, one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. So you've got, definitely got this uh, condemnation of necromancy in scripture. Now, you might be wondering, why in the heck am I talking about this? Um, and it, I, yeah, I was not the one who uh, thought of this. It was pointed out to me by some other person, I think probably some article I read online years ago. Um, so I won't take credit for it, but it is a very good point. Um, there is a lot of literature right now, and uh, maybe not quite so popular in 2021, but definitely was popular just a few years ago. There's a lot of literature on the Christian bookshelves about um, people who have near-death experiences, and they write books with titles like Heaven is for Real, um, or 60 Minutes in, in Heaven, or whatever. I don't know if that's one. Um, I'm kind of making that up, maybe. But there were, oh man, there was so much literature um, like this. And there was even a movie uh, made about the uh, book Heaven is for Real, um, which is the one I'm the most familiar with. Um, and the, the, the idea of these books is basically someone like will slip into a coma, they're in a car accident or something. In, in the case of Heaven is for Real, it's a little boy who, who goes into a coma and um, sees visions of like heaven, right? Yeah. Has dreams. And then, you know, they write this book about their experiences and it's marketed you know, with titles such as Heaven is for Real and um, with taglines and, and other things that are, the, the idea of the marketing is basically something like, hey, if you read this book, you know, you'll know why, um, you'll know for sure that Heaven is for Real. Like, this boy saw it, right? Um, but here's the thing. <laughs> we know Heaven is for Real because the prophets and the apostles bear witness to its reality. Uh we don't know heaven is for real because of the word of some random kid. First of all, the parents could be using their kid to lie for money. Like, you know, they got a lot of money off this book. It sold well. Second of all, the kid could be lying for attention. Third of all, the kid could be misunderstood. He, he might not understand his own experience. Or, or lastly, maybe the kid really had this extravagant dream, but it's just that, a dream. It doesn't have any like we can't objectively know what the meaning of this dream is um you know maybe god gave the boy a comforting vision when he was in his coma and god you know that's awesome that's a miracle um that doesn't mean that we should be using it as a means of understanding what heaven is like uh, the scriptures are there for us to do that um and i in particular i just really object to the uh, marketing surrounding these books um heaven is for real and you'll know if you Read this story. Well, um, if they won't be convinced by Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Or, we might say, has a near-death experience and survives it. Um, and and I, I mean this in all seriousness, although it sounds kind of funny to say, but this is necromancy. This is attempting to communicate with those who have gone beyond the grave as a means of discerning truth. And the reason I say that is, you know, necromancy is not considered evil in Isaiah 8 because it's like scary and demonic. That's not what Isaiah 8 says. It says that it's evil because it indicates that we're not trusting God and looking to him as our source of wisdom and knowledge. That's why it's wicked. 
not because, you know, not because of, like, the crazy, you know, I don't know, Dungeons and Dragons, like, witchcraft, you know, like the crazy off-the-wall, um, you know, Satan, you know, speaking through people and, and you know, demon-possessed girls are, you know, vomiting pea soup out of their mouths. I mean, you know, obviously that, you know, you don't want to play around with the demonic. That can happen. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, discrediting that that entirely, um, uh, that, that realm of... Uh, demonic possession or whatever. I just, I'm just trying to make the point that that's not what the scriptures identify as the main problem here. And and so I'm looking at books like Heaven is for Real and, and, and seeing in it, I'm like, okay, like the whole idea behind this book and the reason why it's selling so well is the same sin that God uses um, in his condemnation of mediums and necromancers. So... That's my little spiel there. Uh, perhaps a little harsh, but I think it's entirely warranted. I think this is pernicious and false teaching, and I think there's other the different um, there's other different ways Christians fall into this trap, looking for healings, um, looking for unexpected financial provision, or even speaking in tongues and etc. as like evidence that God is real, right? Um, and my purpose is not to argue that those things don't exist. Um, I, I, you know, whether you're, you know, more Pentecostal, charismatic or not, I'm not criticizing you here for that position. Um, I'm just saying examine your heart, right? Are we putting our faith in things that are seen or things that are not seen? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. So are we excessively interested in the sensual, in things that we can tangibly experience with our five senses, extravagant miracles um, and, and provisions of God? Or are we, are we looking to Christ and trusting his word alone? That's what this passage is kind of, uh, is strongly encouraging us to do. We're not looking for um, miracles. We're looking toward Christ and his word and um, and uh, that word is in and of itself a miracle. And just as as a final illustration of this point, I'll put this in the show notes. There's a an article in the Christian Post um, about a boy, a different boy from the Heaven Is for Real boy. <laughs> this guy's name is Alex Malarkey, which is just so funny <laughs> that that's his last name, Alex Malarkey. Um, and uh, he wrote, or he didn't write it, I'm sure. Some, some people wrote the book about him. Um, but it's called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. And uh, it tells the story of a six-year-old um, who suffered an, an accident in 2004, and he was in a coma, and then, you know, he wrote, you know, a story about dying and going to heaven and whatever. And then he comes back. And then years later, Malarkey, um, this looks like this article came out in 2014, um, so, or actually no, 2015, sorry. And, uh, basically this kid later said, quote, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the son of God who died for your sins um, so that you can be forgiven, may you learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. And Lifeway pulled his book from stores after he made this statement. Uh, they should be ashamed of themselves for ever having sold it. Um, all Christian book publishers who ever sold any of this literature ought to be ashamed of themselves, which is all Christian book <laughs> distributors, from, from my understanding, except for maybe a few small independent ones. 
Um, John is not here to hold me back. <laughs> I have uh, made my piece, I think, uh, passionately enough about this. I think this is borderline heresy, the way it's been marketed, and a direct contradiction of this parable that we have before us today. Um, and evangelicals should completely ignore people who make these claims. And that's not to say that, that um, I, I, the boy who, who was behind the Heaven is for Real book still maintains that um, his experiences are true. I don't disbelieve him, you know, I, th I think he probably did have a comforting dream, um, but the idea that this is this is something that should persuade us of the reality of heaven is something uh, Bible-believing Christians should clearly reject. Okay, so that's my one uh, major application point, and then, and then here is kind of my last punchy application point for today. Um, just the reality of hell, right? Um, Abraham indicates to the rich man that the brothers already have all they need to understand how to escape hell. Um, many unbelievers today will say things like, oh, if God is real, why doesn't he just strike the ground in front of me with a lightning bolt? Then I'll know he's real. Well, according to the Bible, no, they won't. You know, if God indeed were to test their their statement and, and strike the ground in front of them, what do you think the chances are that the unbeliever would just say, oh, well, that was a crazy coincidence, <laughs> right? Like they wouldn't actually, they wouldn't actually believe. Um, they're not disposed to believe, right? Uh, in this case, his brothers have Moses and the prophets, but they don't listen to them. And the man himself did not listen to Moses and the prophets. Um, and in, in fact, you know, in actual history, Jesus will die and rise again, and the apostles will spread the word about it. And there will be those who do not believe. <laughs> they won't be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And those words from Abraham ought to really shake us to the core of our being because here today we have not just Moses and the Old Testament prophets, but we have the Messiah himself. That's the greatest prophet. And we have the writings of his holy apostles um, with us today in our houses. And we have the capacity to read them. We have more culpability than perhaps any generation in human history when it comes to our, our requirement to know the scriptures. Um, we should, you know, assess ourselves somberly um, as a result of that. Um, and here's, here's the main question. I think here's the question that we're left with at the end of all this. Um, are we listening? Are we listening to Moses and the prophets? Are we hearing them? Um, and if we refuse to listen to them, nothing else will persuade us. So right now, are we listening? Are we obeying? Are we uh, following Christ? Uh, is, is his word enough for us or are we looking to other things? Um, are we shaping our lives according to it? These are some serious questions. This is eternity here. Are we followers of Christ or not? Are we feasting sumptuously every day to our destruction as we ignore, as we ignore the good works God has called us to do? Um, as we ignore God himself? As, or maybe we presume ourselves to be perfect and never ask for forgiveness? Um, Let's not be like the rich man. I mean, that's the clear uh, takeaway here. Well, that being said, um, I thought this would be a short episode, and it most certainly was not. <laughs> thank you for uh, listening to my voice for like an hour straight. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us, um, or, or just me, I guess, on this episode of the John 315 podcast. Next time, John will be with me, and um, we'll have a great time. Um, and uh, until next time, if you have any questions... Uh, go ahead and send them to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. That's the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.